Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 104 of the Dangerous History Podcast. You're joining me today in my commute in the Silver Bullet, the 2014 Hyundai Accent hatchback in silver color. And so if the audio sounds a bit different, that's why. And I'm going to serve you up a compact yet flavor and nutrition packed, I hope, cornucopia platter of top-of-the-line gourmet food for thought that is both organic and locally grown. I'm going to be talking about a concept called gross human product. More on that in a moment, but first, got to give a few Patreon shout-outs to some awesome people who have stepped up to help support the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. And I have to extend huge gratitude to Bevan, Brian, and Scott. Thank you all very much for signing up to support the show over at Patreon. And just as a reminder to all of you, if you enjoy this show and want to spare a couple bucks a month to help it keep humming along and growing as it has been, and at the same time get some extra Dangerous History podcast bonus material, all you got to do is sign up to support the show over on Patreon. And if you do so, I'll thank you by name in the next episode I produce after you've signed up. And in addition to that, for a minimum pledge of $1 per episode, you'll have access to bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes that are available nowhere else. So I hope you'll consider doing that if you're not already a Patreon supporter of the show. And as well, you can go to profcj.org slash donate to see some other ways that you can help out the show financially as well. So on to the topic of today's show, Gross Human Product, or GHP. What is this? Well, Gross Human Product might sound like what would come out of your orifices after you've eaten too much at a real low-brow, nasty, maybe Mexican or Chinese or Indian restaurant. By the way, I'm not denigrating any of those those types of cuisine. I love them all. I'm saying, you know the ones that you go to sometimes where you're like, uh, I think this place might have got a, a, a D plus or a C minus from the Board of Health, you know, um, where it's a bit shady. And the fact that those those cuisines can have some gastrointestinal aggravating characteristics even when done on a high quality level you combine that with a shady quality level and it can quite it can make for quite interesting um bathroom adventures let's say so gross human product might sound something like that but rest assured this episode is not going to be about any gastrointestinal difficulties it's a concept that I came across first uh, perhaps a year ago or so 
while reading an interesting little book from Yale professor James C. Scott, whose work I've mentioned repeatedly on this podcast. I find him to be a very, very interesting guy, uh, very interesting ideas and academic work. One of the very few people you'll find at very high levels of standard academia who is actually somewhat friendly to anarchism. So that right there, you know, he's an interesting guy. And he's got an interesting little book called Two Cheers for Anarchism that's got essays on some different topics that relate to anarchism and its application in in our lives. I found it to be a very thought-provoking little book. And in this book, Scott has an essay where he talks about this concept that I'm going to share with you today, gross human product. And he writes in this chapter, quote, What if we were to ask what kind of people a given activity or institution fostered? Any activity we can imagine, any institution, no matter what its manifest purpose, is also willy-nilly transforming people. What if we were to bracket the manifest purpose of an institution and the efficiency with which it is achieved and ask what the human product was, end quote. So I think that's a part of human activities and institutions that the vast majority of people really never think about consciously. Now, we might have feelings and reactions to it on a subconscious, nonverbal level. We might sort of feel like, uh, I think this institution or this activity or the way this thing over here is run is not really good for the people involved in it. We might have those feelings and might even make some decisions and reactions based on those feelings. But at least in my experience, I've rarely thought explicitly about this concept of gross human product. What type of people does a human institution or activity, etc., what type of people does it produce? Not just looking at the way most economists and most people who think at all about these sorts of questions, they just look at, like, what's the end result? You know, they look at the way a, a an institution or, or a business or an economic activity or whatever, at the way it's run, and they say, look, it, it produces this much of, of goods or whatever, but they don't look at, yeah, but what effect does participating in that product, that process, that system, that institution have on the people who are actually involved in doing it, right? Because we can easily imagine, for example, one job where if you do it for 25 or 30 years, you end up as an individual worse off than you were before, perhaps in a bunch of ways, not just physically, you know, if it's a physically demanding job, it might wear down your body. But mentally, right? I mean, how many jobs are there out there that by the time you're done doing them 20 or 30 years, like, you're less of a person than you used to be? You're kind of like a sad shadow of who you were at the start of that particular career. Meanwhile, we can all probably, at least hypothetically, think of jobs and careers and whatnot where it's... It's a fulfilling, invigorating sort of a deal that helps you to actually get better as a person from year to year as time goes on. And where you could look back at the end of a career in a job like that and say, you know, I'm, I'm glad I, I had to do something to make a living. I'm glad I did that thing, whatever it is, because it allowed me to meet my economic and therefore physical needs, but 
it did so in a way that wasn't totally soul-crushing, that wasn't something that turned into a drab Groundhog Day just depressing experience. So Scott suggests this concept of gross human product, which, you know, is difficult to quantify in the way you could quantify something like gross economic product of one type or another. It's more qualitative than quantitative. And a lot of social scientists, and and I don't even really like that term, I think it's problematic as a concept, but, you know, I'm using it because it's there to describe things like history, economics, political science, etc. A lot of social scientists don't want to even talk about anything that's not quantifiable. And the problem with that is it's sort of like the old joke about Man walking down the street sees an obviously drunk guy looking on along the ground for something underneath the street light, and uh, the man asks the drunk guy, "Hey, did you lose something? Are you looking for something?" And the drunk says, "Yeah, I, I dropped my keys." And uh, the man asks asks the drunk, "So you dropped them somewhere around there?" And the drunk says, "No, I dropped them further down the street, but this is where the light is." Right? That's kind of how I, I see this obsession on the part of many social scientists with things that can be quantified, graphed, measured, etc. Don't get me wrong, there are many questions and many types of data and information that are quantifiable, and it's important to look at those for certain questions and issues and whatever, but I think if we're all being honest, and not just trying to defend some academic fiefdom, we would admit that a hell of a lot of extremely important aspects of the human experience and of human society are things that really can't be quantified in any objective sense. I mean, you could invent some sort of goofy unit of gross human product, you know, smiley faces. This job provides four smiley faces. This job provides only three. But whatever you tried to invent would ultimately be kind of arbitrary and non-objective as a criteria. And in addition to that, in many cases, when you try to invent quantifiable units, you know, one, one that comes to mind is that there were some economists a while back that came up with something called utils to try and quantify the utility of, a, of an item or a product. And, I mean, it's just ridiculous because there's no objective way to do that. Whatever criteria you establish is ultimately going to be to some degree, subjective and arbitrary, both in its own, you know, construction and also in its application. You also have the problem of, if you try to do this and invent quantifiable units for these things like, you know, how fulfilling and constructive is is a job on the person doing it, or anything like that, you also run into this problem that not everybody is the same, that individual human beings are very different from each other, and ultimately you can find some similarities, no question, but but people are unique individuals. And so a job that one person loves and just can't wait to get up in the morning tomorrow to do again, that exact same job to another person who's got, you know, different preferences and a different background and different perhaps genetic predispositions even – that same job would be a a miserable one to a different person. And so I think we need to keep quantitative and qualitative ways of looking at things, each in their proper place. Each are appropriate to certain questions and phenomenon, 
And um, when you try to cross-contaminate one way of measuring with the with the other, it it just causes problems, right? I mean, if you're trying to figure out what the GDP is of a country, that's an objective, quantifiable thing. You can come up with a number. But if you're trying to figure out how happy are the people of that country, well, there are ways you can try and get a feel for that. And you can, you know, do surveys and look at various sorts of data. But at the end of the day, it's ultimately not going to be the same amount of objectivity as you would get saying, let's go through the data and crunch the numbers to come up with a number for GDP. So when Scott is talking about this idea of gross human product and suggesting it as a new way to think about many types of human activity, he's suggesting that we measure the degree to which a particular method of work, that's what he's mostly talking about in in this essay, although I think you could apply it to other things as well, but work is where it's, I think, the most relevant, that we ask about a particular method of work or a particular job or career, whether or not it, quote, enlarged human capacities and skills, end quote, and also trying to have some sort of a handle on the degree to which the workers themselves, from their own subjective individual experience of this job, are satisfied with it. So in this, in this essay, Scott talks about how the assembly line was designed to eliminate, or, or at the very least minimize, the degree of skill and knowledge required of the worker, which in the pre-mass production, pre-assembly line days, people who fabricated things, who made stuff and fixed things and whatever, were generally artisans. They were skilled craftsmen. And these were usually skills that were a significant kind of human capital that took a long time to acquire and master. So Scott writes, quote, The line, meaning the assembly line, was premised on a de-skilled, standardized workforce in which one hand could be easily substituted for another. It depended, in other words, on what we might legitimately call the stupidification of the workforce, end quote. And that's interesting because economics will tell us that the more you can get things on a standardized mass production assembly line sort of method in general, that, that that must be better because you'll get more stuff produced. And at least in theory, it should be of more consistent quality. You know, you get interchangeable parts and all these things from assembly line mass production. And that quant, that uh, quantitatively, more goods are produced and typically at a cheaper price than if you have more artisan activity going on. And that's true, but that's doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that it's quote unquote better because there may be some cases in which quality might matter more than quantity number 1 and and by the way I'm not saying that the market economy can't potentially handle these these issues I'm saying these are things that often are are not explicitly called into question or thought about but there are cases where quality might matter more than quantity for particular products right I mean I don't care within a certain Within a certain limitation, I don't care if my Kleenexes, my tissues, are custom-made or mass-produced. I'd rather have a cheaper mass-produced one up to a certain point. Now, if it's a Kleenex that is so cheaply made that it's like abrasive and makes your nose bleed when you wipe your nose, that's obviously not acceptable. But I, I would want tissues that are as cheap and mass-produced as possible while, while still being acceptable from the standpoint of softness and so on. 
So that's one potential problem with the assembly line mass production model of doing things is that in, in some cases, at least, quality might matter more than quantity. In other cases, the opposite might be true. It depends on the product and, and people's preferences. But another problem with the assembly line, and this is the one that Scott is focusing on in this essay, is what it does to the workers, right? Because an artisan, a, a skilled worker, there are a lot of different factors that typically make his work not just economically more beneficial to him than than a an unskilled or semi-skilled factory worker, but these non-financial, these somewhat more difficult to quantify subjective factors like how satisfied are you with your, with your work, right? How much worth do you feel in yourself for what it is that you do with your working time? Do you feel like just another interchangeable part in a machine, or do you feel like you as an individual have skill in work because you're able to do this thing very well that very few people can do even okay? Does your work make you happier and more satisfied and so on, or does it do the opposite of that? So Scott points out that, quote, were we scoring assembly line work by the degree to which it served to enlarge human capacities and skills, and he's talking about of those actually doing the work, it would receive failing grades no matter how efficient it was at producing cars, end quote. One of the positive things that used to be in kind of American culture and an important theme in American history and was perhaps a central feature of the American mind for many people for a long time was the concept of an independent livelihood. The, the idea that, that freedom, liberty, independence was not just about trying to restrain government with various bills of rights and checks and balances, and I'm not getting into you know, why those things don't work out in, in this episode because of the sake of time, right? But just, you know, tabling that aside, that was part of the idea of what was supposed to bring about liberty that made America different from the rest of the world. And again, I'm not saying that these things were actually true in reality. I, I'm saying at the level of what people believed and the ideals they held and so on. So part of the idea of American liberty and independence was the idea of limited government, but part of it was like individual personal. Part of it was the idea that it's not good to be overly dependent on and subject to the whims of and controlled by any other person or institution if you can help it. And a big part of this was the idea of employers, now, again, I'm not saying that the reality in America ever lived up to the marketing and to the beliefs and to the ideals. For example, a heck of a lot of the people coming to the American colonies for really the entire time they were colonies were indentured servants of one type or another. And, of course, a bunch more were actual flat-out slaves. And certainly plenty of others who came to the American colonies who were neither indentured servants nor slaves, ended up being employees or something along those lines. But there was at least an understanding in the minds of more people back then that this is not something that is desirable, especially not as a terminal point in one's life and career. 
there was more of a notion that, yes, sometimes you have to be an employee in some fashion in order to make a living, you know, to put food on your table and all that sort of thing. You might be in a situation where that's, for the time being at least, all you can do and the best you can do. But there was more of a notion that this is not where your endpoint should be, that this is not what your goal should be to become an employee. And that, that it might be a necessary temporary thing, a stepping stone, but the idea was the ultimate goal of a free American should be to be self-employed in some fashion. Now, numerically, the most common way of doing this for the colonial period and much of the antebellum period was through becoming some sort of a yeoman farmer who owned and worked his own land. But there were other avenues as well. There's the small business um, avenue of, you know, having some kind of a little shop or tavern or whatever. And then there's also the artisan route of becoming a a skilled craftsman who's self-employed in some fashion, you know, a blacksmith or a candle maker or a brewer or whatever the heck it might be. And lots of people, both in the colonial period and on through the revolution into much of the antebellum period, and this attitude lingered after that, but I think it was stronger prior to the Civil War, especially in the antebellum north. The idea was that having checks and balances, limited government, the Bill of Rights, all that stuff, and again, I'm not saying that these things aren't flawed and that they actually lived up to what they were doing. I'm saying this is what people believed. I want to make that clear. Having having that stuff, having the, the political mechanisms in place to allegedly safeguard your rights and all that was necessary but not quite sufficient to be a fully, lib- you know, in today's language we would say liberated, empowered individual, something like that. That, yeah, you, you needed limited government and your rights and all that, but if you were then just horribly dependent upon and in a way held hostage to some boss or some employer, or some landlord, if you're a farmer who's working land that's not, that you don't own, some sort of tenant farmer, that you're not really free. And that you can't fully be yourself, you can't fully speak your mind in, in safety. If you, if you're worried about getting fired or some other form of retaliation from somebody upon whom you are economically dependent, right? And of course, back then, from the colonial period in North America all the way through the turn of the 20th century, numerically very few people were dependent upon government for their living. You know, there was, there was compared to today, tiny numbers of government employees, you know, some soldiers and whatever. But as far as people just dependent upon the government for a check every month, it was minuscule compared to today. So that wasn't their primary concern prior to the 20th century, when, when speaking about, you know, the dangers of economic dependence, it was mostly the idea of bosses, landlords, employers, whatever, that that was the problem. And the idea is that a person who is self-employed, who is self-sufficient economically, or largely so, is a person who is of a higher quality, a higher caliber of person than someone who is simply an employee and that's it. You can find these attitudes in the writings of Jefferson and many of the Jeffersonians, many of the members of his Democratic-Republican Party and then of the antebellum Democratic Party, you know, the, the Democratic Party of Andrew Jackson and people like that. Again, reality did not, did not always match the 
the ideals and so on, but the point is that at least these were ideals that people did often aspire to, and at least some people were able to achieve. There's a quote I came across from Thomas Jefferson many years ago, and unfortunately, either I didn't write it down, or if I did, I've long since lost it. And I've tried to find it, I've tried to look it up, and so far have have not been successful. So if any of you can find a Jefferson quote based on what I'm saying and find that it's it's verified that he actually said it, because I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of quotes floating around on the internet that are bullshit. But if you can find a quote to this effect from Thomas Jefferson that you can verify he said it and kind of where it comes from, then uh, please feel free to send it in to me. But it was a quote, the gist of which, this is not the words Jefferson would have used, but the gist of it was something like, the liberties of the United States are going to be in danger if we ever become a nation primarily of employees, of people who are dependent upon others for their economic livelihood. And you can point the fingers at Jefferson for being a guy who lived on the labor of his slaves, and I'm not going to contradict you, and I'm going to agree. He's hypocritical. A lot of the wonderful things that he believed and espoused, he did not actually live by himself. And that's fair criticism, and it means he's a hypocrite, but it doesn't mean that what he said was wrong. It just means that he didn't actually live by what he was saying. You know, if a person who's a crackhead and not even one in recovery, like an active crackhead, tells you, don't smoke crack, it's bad for you, he's a hypocrite because he's not living by the advice that he's giving others. But that doesn't mean his advice is is wrong. That doesn't mean that crack is good for you. What he's saying is actually correct. He's just not living up to his own espoused statements, right? So anyway, they understood that even of all people, Abraham Lincoln understood this as well. There's um, a speech Abraham Lincoln gave before he became president that I've heard John Taylor Gatto, of all people, quote a number of times in which Lincoln hit upon these themes. And, you know, just because many of us may not like Lincoln and may know that he doesn't live up to the saintly image doesn't mean that everything he said was dead wrong. Doesn't mean that he didn't occasionally make a valid point from time to time. So I think most of us would agree that if you are completely dependent upon some institution or some boss or some employer or, you know, in the modern era with the welfare state, some sort of government largesse, that if you're dependent upon that for your subsistence, you can never be free as an individual, even if the government magically started, not that I'm expecting them to ever do this, but they magically started respecting the Bill of Rights and stuff like that, you still wouldn't be free. You you would have, you might be relatively free of overt state coercion, but you would you would still not be free as an individual to truly be yourself, to truly say what you think, and to live your life by your own values, because there'd always be the limiting factor of, what if I say something my boss doesn't like, etc.? But this concept of gross human product from James Scott doesn't just look at it from that standpoint of individual freedom and and it makes for a better society if more people are economically um, self-reliant, but also, very important, central to this idea of gross human product, it produces better people. And I guess that ties into the other points I just mentioned as well, now that I think about it. Just think about it. Which is going to produce a better person, especially after a number of years of of working, right? A self-employed artisan who is skilled in some way and and takes 
genuine pride and satisfaction in his craft and who is basically in control of his own work life. I mean, he, he has to satisfy his customers, but he has the ability to not work for a particular customer if that customer is being unreasonable or whatever, being a problem. Is that self-employed, skilled artisan more likely to end up as a better person? Just overall, right? Like a better, well-rounded person. Or an unskilled or at best semi-skilled factory worker employed by a giant corporation who's just a cog in a machine who's easily replaceable by, you know, the next hundred guys who show up when they're hiring. After 20 or 30 years, is that skilled craftsman likely to be a better person than the unskilled factory laborer after 20 or 30 years. Now, might there be exceptions? Might there be a skilled artisan who, for whatever reason, is having problems and maybe has a mental affliction or who knows what, and there might be a factory worker who is just happier than a hog and crap going in and and punching a button on the widget machine every day. Yes, I'm sure you could find exceptions, but I'm saying the general tendency, which one would you expect are going to produce better people overall? Better, happier, smarter, more um, satisfied, more just kind of intelligent and curious and all the sorts of things that I at least would think the world would be a better place if people were more that way, right? Whereas the unskilled factory worker employed by a giant company, I would imagine, is far more likely to end up as a person who has basically a peasant, serf, perhaps even slave-like mentality. And to see the world in that way and to be very insular, to not give the slightest crap about things like self-cultivation but to simply see the world in terms of how do I pressure the bosses to give me another nickel rather than how do I improve myself so that I can be in a more independent and rewarding situation. I think if you're in the unskilled factory labor situation for decades, that you're probably going to be conditioned to be basically a serf. Very uncurious about the world, not, not at all interested in learning new things. Very reactionary in a way. Let me take another example. What's more likely to produce an overall better person all around, right? A teacher at a typical school where you have very little autonomy and ability to be creative and to teach things the way that you want to teach them, or a teacher who's at some sort of a progressive in the good sense of the word School where there's a lot of uh, leeway and creativity given to both teachers and students. Pick, you know, whatever your favorite one is, Montessori or any of the other alternatives along those lines where the student is given a lot more autonomy and the teacher is in this very different position and there's a lot more creativity and self-direction going on. Is, is a teacher who works in a typical school where they are simply given prepackaged curricula and they're micromanaged and there's no room for spontaneity or creativity or anything like that and the teachers who actually do those things are technically breaking the rules and putting themselves at risk or a teacher in a much more creative spontaneous situation where there's a lot of autonomy both for the teacher and then for the student okay you can imagine after 20 30 years which teacher is going to be happier, which teacher is going to be just more vibrant and alive as a human being. 
And when you think about that, I think you're really getting to a taste of what Scott means by gross human product and what I mean by it as I, you know, harp on this concept. And I can talk about my personal experience here. I've been some sort of a teacher or another in various capacities since I was a teenager. I started off as a teenager. I gave some guitar lessons to other people, um, other teenagers who you know were just starting to learn how to play guitar, and I was way ahead of them. And then when I was in college and graduate school, I taught test prep classes for Kaplan. And when I got out of graduate school, now I've taught at several different colleges teaching history. And then, of course, in addition to that, the last couple of years I've had this podcast. And what I've noticed is that the more independence I have, the more happy I am with teaching. I mean, I like teaching in general, but when I'm in situations where there's a bit more things foisted upon me and, and there's more control and there's less autonomy, I'm less happy. And I don't do as good of a job, and I know I'm not doing as good of a job, and frankly, I can't do as good of a job. Meanwhile, the more autonomy and independence I have to teach, the more not only am I happier and better all around, but also the more the person who is on the receiving end of the teaching probably benefits. The most wide-open teaching I've ever done is this podcast. It's the most wide-open, unrestricted I can talk about what I want to talk about, how I want to talk about it, and I certainly listen to listener feedback, especially if it's intelligent, but at the same time, I, I'm not required to heed it. Somebody might have some thoughtful criticisms that I look at it and I go, I understand where you're coming from, I get it, and you're being reasonable, you're not just being a troll, but at the same time, I disagree and I'm going to keep doing things the way I'm doing them or whatever, or I might read some thoughtful criticism and go, well, you know, this person makes a good point. I could improve this thing over here or do this differently. But the point is that I'm free to decide, just like an artisan is free to decide whether or not to take a particular commission or a particular contract, I'm free to decide whether or not I want to respond to an individual listener. And the cool part is by having thousands of listeners, um, if, you know, if one of you just decides you hate my guts one day, like, well, that's unfortunate, but I still have an audience. And I bring this up just to say that this is firsthand from my perspective experience of gross human product. And it stems directly from autonomy and the ability to be creative and be in control of how I do things as far as this podcast goes. Now, I'm lucky, I have been lucky so far, where I currently work and where I've worked for the last nine years, they do run things, the administration that I've had, there's been some different different people in and out over the years, but for the most part, they run things with a very light touch. I, I give them credit. They don't really micromanage the faculty most of the time, as long as you're doing the basics of your job and you're not messing something up badly or what have you. They allow you a high amount of ability to kind of teach things the way you want to teach them. And so I've been very fortunate in that regard. I know there are other colleges where there's a lot more monitoring and micromanaging of of uh, curriculum and, and how it's taught. At the same time, though, there are still inherent limitations on my autonomy and creativity just because of the nature of the situation. If I'm teaching U.S. history since 1877, and one day I come in and I really, 
really want to talk to the students about something from thousands of years ago, I really can't in good conscience spend a whole lot of time on that. I mean, if I wanted to take a couple minutes and say, hey, look, here's the thing that happened in Rome, and it's kind of relevant to this stuff we're looking at, I can do that, no problem. But I, I can't, in the way I would with this podcast, just say, hey, you know what, let's spend an hour and a half suddenly talking about something totally disconnected from what we talked about last class, because I think it's interesting and important and illuminates things, etc. Can't do that. Whereas here, obviously, I can. And if you have listened to a lot of the show, you've seen how much I jump around in terms of time period and what geographical part of the world history I'm looking at and so on. Now, I mentioned before the factory worker, and that used to be the big thing everybody focused on. Anyone trying to analyze the workplace and, and labor practices and whatever was, were all fixated on factories for a long time because that was a huge amount of the American economy. But blue-collar factory jobs are nowhere near as prevalent as they used to be. For at least the last 40 years or so, they've been on the decline. If you don't believe me, go take a drive through the geographical region known as the Rust Belt. So perhaps more fruitful than asking what kind of person a somewhat mindless, low-skill factory-type job produces might be a better question to ask what kind of person does a somewhat mindless, bureaucratic, white-collar office job produce? And I don't think in most cases the answer is very flattering. Now, are there exceptions? Are there people who have, like, terribly boring, soul-crushing jobs, like the jobs you see in office space or what have you, who nonetheless are great people and who perhaps spend their their time away from work uh, pursuing knowledge and skills and all that and who just look upon their boring, soul-crushing job as a necessary evil and don't really let it get them down. Yes, there are those people. I'm not those people. I cannot help but have my soul crushed by soul-crushing jobs. And I, don't, I think most people are in my boat on that as well. And so, again, what kind of person does 20 or 30 years at the jobs from that movie office space, what kind of person does that produce? That Those jobs might be producing a lot of profit and wealth to somebody. And so from a typical pure dollars and cents economics point of view, you might say, well, this is great. It's a very efficient and important thing. They're facilitating this and that and throw in all the corporate lingo and give me some graphs and some numbers and whatever and see, look, it's making money. So there you go. How dare you question the workings of the market? And and just come in and say, look, there's a human aspect to this, too. And if we're in a society where more people are in these sorts of, in in a way, mindless dead-end jobs, these bureaucratic, white-collar cubicle jobs, what kind of society is that going to be? Is that going to be a society of liberated individuals who think for themselves? Or is that likely to be a society of conformists who go along to get along because as much as they might hate the way things are, they're terrified of any form of ostracism or retaliation. A while back, I attended a professional development seminar thingy related to work, and as those things typically are, it was mostly kind of useless. But there was one little segment of a couple of minutes where the speaker, and I don't even remember uh, what the dude's name was or where he was from or whatever. Um, I don't even remember the main topic of what he was presenting on. That's how much this had little relevance for me. But there was one little segment of a couple minutes where he was talking about intrinsically motivating work. 
where he was actually talking about something that grabbed my attention that was, to me at least, interesting and important, and where I actually jotted down a few notes of what he said. And what he said was, and I think he had a citation for where this came from, some study or some book, but I wasn't able to jot that down in time. I just jot, jotted down the basics of what he said. What he said was that intrinsically motivating work, according to some studies or whatever, is characterized by the following things. Number one, it is whole and meaningful. Number two, it is relatively challenging. Number three, you have some control over it. And number four, you get feedback on it. Now, I'm going to run through these again, each in a little more detail, and give you some of my thoughts on them. Number one, whole and meaningful. In some way, the task brings you some sort of satisfaction. Now, that can be any of dozens of different types of satisfactions. So I'm not trying to say that there's only one sort of satisfaction you can get from work. could be a creative type satisfaction, like I'm... I did something creative and I know it and it made me feel good. Could be intellectual. I learned something and that was meaningful. Could just be simply financial. I wanted to get some money out of here and I did this and I got some money and that's meaningful to me because I needed some money for something. You know, there are different types of meaningful, but I think the ones that matter the most, the deeper ones having to do with a feeling that you've accomplished something positive on a creative or intellectual or perhaps even kind of moral or, or doing something good for humanity sort of a level. It's whole, meaning it's something where you've done the whole thing. Now, this is a difference between an artisan and an assembly line. And this is, again, where this idea of gross human product butts heads a little bit with... The idea of simply looking at what's the most productive in terms of monetary profits. A skilled artisan typically made a whole thing, a whole item of some sort. Someone who works in a large factory oftentimes is doing one little repetitive thing over and over and over and over. So I think that's what he means by whole. So if you're a shoemaker, you make a shoe right? You're a cobbler. If you work at a giant shoe factory, you might have the job of looking at the plastic little things that go on the end of the shoelaces to make sure they're not coming out of the machine crooked. And that's your job. And you spend eight, nine hours a day staring at thousands of those flying by on a, on an assembly line, making sure they all look straight. Being a cobbler versus having that job on the assembly line with the shoelace ends... Which one is more whole and meaningful? Intrinsically motivating work is relatively challenging. Both words there are equally important. If some form of work is so challenging as to be impossible or virtually so, it's not going to be intrinsically motivating. It's going to be frustrating. Even if you're a person that has patience and a good work ethic and all that, if it's simply too challenging... If it's something that's impossible for you to do, or at least is impossible for you to do anytime in the near future with the skills and resources you have, that's not going to be any good. But if a job is too easy, this is why intelligent people have a very hard time at repetitive stupid jobs. If a job is too easy, it's also going to be 
something that makes you miserable. So there's a sweet spot where your job is challenging enough that you have a real sense of accomplishment and satisfaction when you complete a task, and you feel like you periodically are learning new things, but it is not so challenging that it's impossible and frustrating and so on. Intrinsically motivating work is work in which you have some control over it. Now, nobody, even a self-employed person, has complete control over their work. Because there's always the facts of reality and nature, and there's the fact that you will have some sort of customer. So no one ever has 100% control over their work if it's work that is designed in some way to make you a living. Now, if you're just doing something for fun as a hobby, like you're just painting paintings of what you want to paint, and you have no intention of ever selling them, then you do, I guess, have complete control over it, and you're only limited by the physical realities of what the the media you're using can do and what your own skills might be. But even in very creative careers, if you are trying to make a living from it, you don't have 100% control because you still have to have some sort of customer or consumer or whatever you want to call it, patron, whatever it is. Even if you were a subsistence farmer who owned your own land and had no need for outside exchange, and you you would live a terrible standard of living, by the way, if you had no transactions with the outside world and lived only on your own subsistence farm. But even if you managed to do that and you could keep yourself alive and you could provide all your needs on your own land with your own labor, you still would not have 100% control over your work because you'd be dealing with nature. You'd be dealing with, you'd have certain requirements of things you have to do to run your little farm. Now, you would have a lot of control because you would be able to decide how to do that. But if you didn't do it according to certain rules and, and realities and principles, it wouldn't work out well and you would end up either starving or having to go get a job. And then you get feedback on it. Feedback can take many forms. It can take a, a customer or consumer of your work saying, not just feedback that they're they're paying for it, but saying, this is really great, whatever. It can take the form of, if you're growing your little subsistence farm, like I mentioned before, the feedback is, you've got enough food and you're okay. That means you've been doing things right. And the more the feedback is relatively quick and relatively, I don't know what term I would use here, maybe honest or maybe deep, meaning non-superficial, the more the feedback matters. So, for example, just to use this podcast again to illustrate the point, I get feedback in a variety of ways. I get feedback looking at download stats. If they're going up a lot, I figure I'm probably doing something right. I get feedback through email and social media from listeners. I get feedback in the form of more people sending in donations or signing up at Patreon. I get feedback in terms of people wanting to share my show with others. I get feedback in terms of being invited onto other shows or being invited to speak somewhere. I get feedback in terms of reviews people put on iTunes and places like that. So a variety of ways to get feedback. I actually get more meaningful feedback on a more regular basis from this than I do from my teaching in the classroom, where I do get feedback from various places, but it's not it's not as much, and it's not usually as deep and meaningful. 
So those are the characteristics of intrinsically motivating work. The more whatever work you do has those things in it, whole and meaningful, relatively challenging, some control over it, you get feedback on it, the more those things are a part of whatever it is you do that's quote-unquote work, the more likely it is to be intrinsically motivating, to not feel like an onerous burden, where you don't feel like you're a slave or a serf or whatever, where you feel like it's great that this work is taking care of my needs, but it's also just making me happy. And so what types of things are more likely to produce that kind of gross human product? And I think two key concepts in gross human product are creativity and craftsmanship. And I won't say too much about those other than to say, I don't think that people think about those two parts of work as much as they used to or as much as they should. And that those are two characteristics of, of work that the more they feature in a person's work, the more likely they are to produce a better gross human product. And I just want to close out this discussion, and I hope you've found some some benefit in this. I hope it's been thought-provoking for you on some level. But I wanted to talk about this concept and throw it out there because I think a lot of people don't think about this angle on work and on the individual human being as much as they used to or as much as they should. And I think this is even the case in the realm of those who claim to be libertarians or some sort of anarchists or individualists or what have you, that those sorts of people, if they are supporters of the free market, and I am, by the way, I'm not saying that the solution to improving gross human product is different regulations or, you know, any of that nonsense. I'm saying the solution to improving gross human product is for more people to consciously understand the concept and to think about it and to make decisions accordingly, to weigh that in the balance and do so explicitly, not just on some kind of gut-level feeling way, that the choices you make about whatever it is you do as your quote-unquote work, you shouldn't just look at the the dollars and all that. That certainly matters. I'm not saying ignore that. But to at least factor into your calculus on that, how much it will affect your gross human product, doing one thing versus another. And I want to suggest that perhaps those who are in favor of the free market are sometimes guilty of focusing too much on things like dollars and cents, on profitability, on GDP or whatever, and not enough on GHP. And perhaps it's better if people are a little less materially well off, voluntarily of course, because, and I'm not necessarily sure that in the long run such a society would be less materially well off, by the way. I mean, if you had a lot of self-employed people doing intrinsically motivating work, I think they would not only be happier and they would be better, more cultivated, well-rounded human beings, but I think ultimately you might surpass the just pure GDP productivity of the alternative. But even if it does cause you to be a little bit less well-off in terms of money, you might be way better off as a human being and in terms of happiness and so on if you choose to maybe give up a little bit of dollars in exchange for getting a lot more in terms of gross human product. And I'll just leave you with this question, and I'm sure you all have plenty of answers of people you know like this, how many people do you know 
either personally or people whose stories you've heard through some sort of media like a podcast, a blog, or a book who have at some point in their life significantly cut their income in order to make some sort of a work change to become a lot more independent, but who ended up being much happier even though they had less money and less fancy stuff, and who would not go back to their old, much better paying job that they hated for anything. So again, I hope I hope you found my discussion of gross human product thought-provoking and worthwhile. As always, I greatly appreciate your time, and I hope I have not wasted it. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, by subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course, that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, the final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission, from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.